Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 252, The Coming of the Anglo-Scandinavians. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for only about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Bobby, Allie, and Kirsten for signing up already. At the start of 867, there were four major Anglo-Saxon kingdoms in Britain. But by 874, three of those four, Northumbria, East Anglia, and Mercia, had lost their independence. That's a time span of only seven years. And in that seven years, the political landscape of Britain had changed dramatically and permanently. That's insane. For scale, that's just barely longer than lost. Imagine being a free kingdom back when you thought that there was something interesting going on with Walt, and then being fully under the control of a foreign government by the time that you realized that everyone was just hanging out in the church with Hurley for some reason. That's crazy. And also, the other thing that was crazy was the ending of Lost. I don't know what Lindelof was thinking when he wrote that, but it's been over a decade, and I'm still annoyed. But the point is that life moves on. It always does. If you're breathing... You have to accept that change is going to come at some point. But it's not the fact that life changed that makes this period so interesting. It's the speed in which those changes came. Kingdoms were occupied and annexed, and it wasn't just by the Scandinavians. Mercia came under the umbrella of Wessex. So did Wales, for that matter. Britain was undergoing enormous changes by the late 9th and early 10th centuries. The fractured power structure that had dominated this island's history since the withdrawal of Rome was coming to an end. And honestly, there's kind of a good argument to be made that that period of fracture was longer than that, and that Britain's power structure had come apart long before Rome pulled out. But we're now reaching a point where we have kingdoms with power that dwarfed their forebears, and they were now consolidating that power unto themselves. And discussing the political side of these changes has been a lot of fun. By spending so much time with the daily activities of major figures in history, we've been given a window into what was happening at the upper levels of society, and a smaller window into how that likely impacted the lower levels of society. And it's allowed us to learn a lot more about actual specific individuals like Halfdan, Guthrum, Haston, Athelred, and of course, Alfred. But the world isn't populated by the marquee nobles of history. Sometimes it feels that way, and it's no surprise that I get emails almost every week from excited listeners telling me about how they're related to Alfred or to some other major figure in history. But just because the scribes spend most of their time telling us about only a small handful of nobles doesn't mean that they were the only people alive, nor does it mean that they were the only people that mattered. And that's what I want to talk about. The group that I want to look into as the Heptarchy fully came to an end isn't Alfred and his family. It's everyone else. Because their lives have been going through enormous changes during this time of political upheaval and military mobilization. And not all of those changes were related to war and raiding. So I'm going to give you a short series in this next part of the show that takes you through the cultural changes that were occurring in the Anglo-Saxon and Anglo-Scandinavian territories. I'm going to talk about how they came about and what they mean. 
because these changes were so widespread that we can still see their echoes today. And make no mistake about it, what you're about to learn is a complex and massive undertaking done over the course of decades by many scholars from many disciplines. And I'm going to tell you a story that's drawn from archaeological, numismatic, and sculptural evidence in addition to whatever texts we have. And I'll do my best to weave that into a story that actually makes some degree of sense. But before we begin, I need to address something. There's a chance that many of you think you already know this story. If I ask you about the Scandinavians in Northern England, chances are you'll tell me a story of conquest, a story of Vikings seizing Northumbria in East Anglia, killing the locals, persecuting the Christians, burning everything they could get their hands on, and basically acting like genocidal maniacs, replacing the local population with a Scandinavian one. Well, except for the women. They kept the women. And once that was all complete, they chose to rule as the Dane Law, a persistent thorn in the side of the heirs of Alfred the Great, and of God for that matter. Does that story sound familiar to you? I mean, even if you haven't heard this story, there's a good chance that you've absorbed at least a few parts of it along the way without even noticing it. I mean, just watch a television show or a movie, and you'll probably see elements of that. So let's handle some of these myths. And here's myth number one that you've likely heard or absorbed and simply isn't true. It's the myth that the Vikings were savages bent on the destruction of the Anglo-Saxons and of Christendom itself. Now, primary sources, and actually a shocking number of secondary sources, would have you believe that the Vikings were a monstrous race of wicked men bent on the destruction of Europe, Christ, Santa Claus, apple pie, all of it. But... Once you strip away the biases and exaggerations that came from the chroniclers, who were understandably shocked by the losses of their own people, and even more shocked that holy sites were being attacked, what you see is largely an extension of what we've been talking about for the last several centuries. If you look at the actions of the Viking raiders and of the armies, they're really not all that different from what we've already seen from Anglo-Saxon kings. The idea that this was a cultural war between the Scandinavians and Christians doesn't hold up as soon as you start paying attention to, well, pretty much everything from this period. I mean, think about everything that we've learned about the Northmen. These people generally weren't genocidal maniacs looking to exterminate a race of people and dominate their lands. Now granted, I'm sure that story would have made sense to the Victorians, and that's probably why it became such a popular interpretation. But even if we set aside the fact that to have a genocidal motive requires us to retroactively apply racial concepts to people who likely didn't have those concepts themselves, even if we set all that aside, when we look at the physical evidence, we don't see evidence of widespread extermination. Consequently, I think the lascivious, kill all the men, rape all the women interpretation of Scandinavia tends to say more about those who repeat it than it does about history. Similarly, these people don't appear to have been fanatical pagans looking to kill priests and destroy churches and burn holy books. For the most part, they seem to have been aristocratic pirates who were looking for loot wherever it was easiest to obtain. And later, they were aristocratic pirates who were looking to carve out a territory for them to rule. The religious consequences of these raids appear to have been incidental to the actual goal of wealth acquisition. And while it is really popular to wag our finger at them for raiding monasteries, these monasteries, in many ways, were pretty much like banks at the time. 
They were enormous repositories of what would have been amazing amounts of wealth. And for the Vikingers, these monasteries simply weren't sacred. So it's kind of silly for us to expect them to be treated as such. Now, of course, scribes and locals paint a very different picture. Their telling of this era, and possibly their honest interpretation of it, implies an express religious massacre. And that story has stuck. I mean, how many films and television shows have you seen where Vikings are using Christians as target practice? Watching these TV shows, you'd probably think that thousands of peasants and holy men were being dispatched the same way that St. Edmund the Martyr was. But here's the thing about that. Not even St. Edmund the Martyr appears to have died while being used as target practice. As we discussed in earlier episodes, he went down fighting. But more to the point, we have plenty of examples of Scandinavian rulers converting to Christianity and then continuing to raid right alongside their pagan allies. Guthric of Jorvik was one such leader. So the idea that this was a massive religious purge done with specific animosity towards Christ and Christians doesn't make much sense given the real evidence. Furthermore, the idea of a religiously motivated war and massacres committed in the name of that war seems like it's more of a historical projection than a reflection of reality. Don't forget that in the mid-9th century, we weren't all that far away from the time when Charlemagne massacred thousands of unarmed Saxon pagans. And that was all spoken of as a glorious, righteous, and Christian act. As far as just a straight-up culture war, these Vikinger crews were markedly multicultural. They were also notoriously mercenary. They were bands that were completely willing to fight for Europeans and against other Vikinger crews, given, of course, that they were paid the right price. Furthermore, if they were given the right terms, even the most fearsome Vikinger leaders have shown a willingness to settle peacefully within Christian lands right next to Christian nobles. The fact of the matter is, is that what happened with the Scandinavians appears ultimately to be a political conflict, not a cultural one. Framing it all as a cultural and religious fight was a smart propagandic move for the nobles and clergy who were just trying to hold on to their lands and peasants. But don't mistake clever framing for the reality of the situation. And this myth of a cultural and religious struggle between the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings or even between the Vikings and Christian Europe, really becomes a problem for us because it makes the next stage of history make no sense if we believe the myth is true. Because what's been happening in the late 9th century, and what will continue to happen through the 10th century, is that the upper classes of these culture groups begin to overlap. Members begin to intermarry. They unite. They do business. They join each other's conflicts. And they do pretty much everything else in between. And none of that would make any sense if you're assuming that this was driven by religious fanaticism or deep ethnic divisions that were so great that it would drive people to attempt to commit genocide. Which, again, as far as we can tell, they didn't. So this was politics. Don't think of something like ISIS. This was more like the story of Edwin and the sons of Athelfrith. As you might remember, Edwin and the sons of Athelfrith were Anglo-Saxons, and yet they went into hiding and spent time living with the native British, who the Anglo-Saxons had been at war with. So why would the Brits go and protect them? Well, despite their cultural differences, they were still nobles, and this was all just politics. So it seems like it's a bit like that. Now, some of you are listening, and you might be saying to yourself, 
But the reason why the North is so opaque is because the Scandinavian conquerors went through burning all our written records. Isn't that proof that they hated Christianity? I don't think so. It is true that written records in the Scandinavian kingdoms are largely absent, and it does appear that that was because of a sustained campaign to eliminate those documents. But to draw the conclusion that the destruction of the records was the result of a religious or ethnic motivation doesn't make much sense in this context. And there are plenty of other reasons to do this. For example, if you look at what they were up to, especially when taking into account that, as we're going to be discussing later on, they were actually working with the local secular and ecclesiastical authorities rather than exterminating them. If you look at the things they were doing, the only conclusion you can really reach is that what was happening here was, as I keep on pointing out, politics. You see, it wasn't just religious texts that vanished from the North. Medical texts, histories, land charters, legends, lives of saints, correspondence, and all the other documents that provide a sense of continuity and are the beating heart of a national story, they were all eliminated. Unless the nobles were able to get their documents into safe hands, they were lost. And that's why so many of our earlier records for the North come in one-way correspondences that we've acquired from the continent. Because nearly everything in the North of Britain was destroyed. And as as tragic as that is for us today, it makes perfect sense if these new rulers were trying to set up a new kingdom. Erasing the previous order would make establishing a new one a hell of a lot easier. And we've seen plenty of cultures do this in the past. The Northmen, in destroying all the written records of local history, politics, and myths, seem to have been trying to create a tabula rasa, a blank slate. And any time that happens, a lot's lost. But while we do see a destruction of literature, the culture and the people still remain. They weren't replaced. In fact, we have evidence that the Northmen and the Anglo-Saxons deliberately mixed their people and culture. The written culture of the region looks like it was a casualty of a power struggle, but it wasn't the target. If you want to create a new culture, getting rid of the old one just makes it a lot easier. Furthermore, while they did go and kill a couple Northumbrian kings, this behavior is no more savage than anything else we've seen in Britain. Penda killed more kings than any of the Scandinavians we've talked about. St. Patrick was one of the most prolific book burners in British history, destroying countless irreplaceable records because they're written in Ogham and they discussed the Isles in their pre-Christian days. And those are just the really famous examples. My point is that when you think about the Viking Age of Britain, don't think of savages conducting ethnic or religious cleansing. Much of the strife of this era was one group of aristocrats fighting with another group of aristocrats. And they were just dragging all the rest of us into it. The next thing I'd like to correct is the idea of the Dane law itself. If you've learned anything about this period, you've probably run into Dane law. You've likely even seen maps reflecting it. This huge block of territory with a boundary running up Watling Street, and then on the southwestern side you have Wessex, and on the northeastern side you have Dane law. This mapping gives the impression of a firm territorial and cultural line being drawn during the Viking Age. And those images come from a number of sources, but the most famous is an undated treaty between Alfred and Guthrum. 
This treaty was an agreement on how Alfred's Anglo-Saxons and Guthrum's people would interact, and it established a boundary between them. Now, it dealt with all the necessary pieces of legal rights at the time. There were guild prices, legal regulations, regulations for international trade, and agreements to not recruit each other's subjects for military service. But it also established this boundary between Alfred's lands and Guthrum's lands. The boundary was described as, quote, up on the Thames, then up on the Ley, and along the Ley unto its source, then straight to Bedford, then up on the Ouse to Watling Street, end quote. It's a pretty short sentence within the treaty, but it is this matter of geographical boundary that has gotten the most attention from historians for quite a long time. Scholars have argued passionately over whether the maps accurately reflect the terms of the agreement. Did the territory stop at Watling Street, or did it race all the way up the old Roman road to its end? Things like that. And this debate has raged on and on, and has become so consuming that the focus of it largely seems like it's, what was the boundary of the Dane law, rather than the more important question of, was there a Dane law, and if so, what is a Dane law? And that's unfortunate, because the truth is that the concept of a Dane law doesn't show up in the records until the Norman times. That's when we read of a Denelaga. That's well over a century after it was supposedly established in that treaty between Alfred and Guthrum. And that's a huge problem, because when we talk about Dane law, when we talk about a single kingdom that's to the north and east of Watling Street... It's only natural that we also assume that there was a consolidation of power and that there was an established rule under a single Scandinavian figure. And when looking at the old maps that show the Dane law in 878, you're definitely given the impression that there were just two kingdoms south of the wall. There was Wessex and there was Dane law. But that doesn't appear to have been the case at all. East Anglia and Northumbria had their own monarchs and appear to have been acting independently for quite some time. And what about Eastern Mercia? What about the Northwest? We will get into more detail about this as we go forward. But to start with, I just want you to have it in your mind that the imaginary of a monolithic Scandinavian body politic in the North is just that for quite some time. An imaginary. The third, and probably the most important assumption that we have to correct, is that the story of the arrival of the Scandinavians is one of a static, stable Anglo-Saxon culture that was suddenly thrown into chaos by the arrival of a bunch of blonde pirates. The truth is anything but. Now granted, we're staring down the barrel of a gargantuan shift in the power structure of the Anglo-Saxon territories, but a major driving force behind much of those changes actually started long before the first longships arrived in Britain. Much of what enabled this shift in the organization of what will become England began long before with conflicts between the nobility and the church. See, religious communities were putting a lot of work into building monasteries and other religious houses. And because all of the land was ultimately owned by your lord, we had certain unscrupulous lords who could come along and seize those properties once all the building was done and oust the monks, priests, and nuns and enjoy their new monastery. It was a nasty flaw in the system, and so they attempted to correct that flaw with the creation of bookland. Essentially, bookland is land that's granted in perpetuity. Once that land is given, it's theirs. It doesn't revert back to the Lord, it can't be seized, it's just theirs. 
And at first, it was just for the church. But it wasn't long before the nobles wanted that same deal. After all, they too put a lot of work into developing their lands. And without the protection of book land, what guarantees did they have that their lands wouldn't be seized by the king or given to someone who is more favored by that same king? So pressure was exerted whenever possible. And over time, the king's lands became more and more divested. And we've talked about this briefly in an earlier episode, where I pointed out that this weakened the power of the crown. But it also created something else that would become critical in the cultural and political shifts that we see occurring in the land south of the wall. It created a market for land. Suddenly, certain people could buy their way into land ownership. That's huge. You could also find yourself losing your lands due to debt. And think about that. Before book land, if you wanted to have a plot of land to live on, you needed to find a lord who would let you live on some of his land. And then you had to keep that lord happy and hope that he kept his lord happy and so on and so forth all the way up to the king. Because at any point, those lands could be yanked away. But now, if you had the right amount of money, you could buy a plot of land from someone. Alternatively, if you had a debt that you couldn't satisfy, for example, if there was a Danegeld that needed to be paid, but you lacked the silver, well, you could sell your land. This was an enormous change for the structure of land ownership, and it began before the Danes arrived. Similarly, and likely driven by the same pressures, the old system of large estates, what are sometimes called multiple estates, was also changing. And we're going to be talking about this as we go forward. But to begin with, I want you to have a picture in your mind of what a multiple estate was like. Imagine a plot of land and something large enough to support a full village. So a really big plot of land, maybe like a hundred hides of land. A hide is enough land to support one person. So lots of land. And this plot of land has a village on it. And the village is near a river known for its fish. Consequently, a lot of the energy in that village is directed towards fishing or supporting that industry. But that's not the only thing the village does. You also have plenty of peasants, probably a blacksmith, a carpenter, and all the other people necessary to keep things running. Now imagine five or six more of these villages, each one of them focusing on a local resource. Maybe a couple are farming, maybe one deals with livestock, you know, whatever. And all of these villages, all of them, owe fealty to their local lord. The resources, and even the hides of land that they work on, they're all under a common owner, and that's their lord. This is what a large estate or a multiple estate would be. You have one guy who owns five or six villages, and they're pretty big villages. And he also owns everything that's happening on them. So that's multiple estates. And what happened when book land was introduced was that those lands soon became the personal and permanent property of that lord that we're talking about. Now, instead of being his lands only so long as the king was happy, they were his, and then they would be his heirs, and so on and so forth. But by doing that, by making them personal property, they also now became a thing that could be traded, or bequeathed, or could be given away. So a plot of land that had always been part of a single organized multiple village estate now could be given to the church if the local lord was feeling pious in his old age. Or it could be split up between his kids. Or if he decided he didn't like his kids, it could be given to the church again. Or maybe times got tough 
In that case, he could sell it, at least part of it. So the land ownership scheme of the southern kingdoms was fragmenting. And more than one scholar has referred to what was happening to the land as it being privatized, which I suppose it was. But for hundreds of years, the Scandinavians have been taking the blame for it. For centuries, we've been told about abbeys that were shutting down due to Viking attacks. And then only recently, we've discovered that actually, many of them were shutting down before any attacks began, because they were being privatized and sold off. The truth is that one of the biggest driving forces behind the cultural and political changes that occurred in the 9th and 10th centuries wasn't large bearded armies looking for plunder, though they certainly did have an impact. No, one of the biggest driving forces was something that gets almost no attention. It was a simple change in how the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms approached the concept of land ownership. It was market forces. It was privatization. Without that, I'm not sure that we'd see the same scale of political changes that we do. Honestly, I'm not even sure that we'd see the same level of Scandinavian settlement, but we'll get to that later. But for now, we've got the three big misconceptions out of the way. And we've set the stage. Forget the old story of Dane Law. The story is much better. And next time, we're going to talk about the real story. How life, land, and politics changed. And how culture followed. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast. And you can find links to all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. 